Hey folks, before we get started here, uh, I want you to take a minute and check out our main page, thefedorachronicles.com, and I want you to check out our incredible sponsors, Trinity Whip Company, Landry Artifacts, and Chester Cordite. These people provide incredible products and incredible services that um, just have to be seen to believe, and they have been gracious and generous enough to help support the fedora chronicles radio show and all the other things that we do so please be sure to do yourself and them a favor and check them out this is the fedora chronicles network this is the fedora chronicles radio show number 70 and i'm your host eric render king fisk in this supersized edition john pike and i talk about the two blade runner motion pictures Star Trek Discovery, and the Orville. Then we talk about dystopian writing from the diesel punk era, and our call for even more founding documents written by fellow retrocentrics, jazz aficionados, diesel punks, and more. Be sure to check out our show page, thefedorachronicles.com slash podcast slash episode dash seven zero dot html. So hang on to your fedoras, Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. It is the truth. Today was a great day for new comics, especially for uh, diesel punk comics. Well, okay. Wolfenstein no. number two came out. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I haven't read the first issue yet. Um, this is the second issue. And um, I, I'm, I'm getting it to support, you know, diesel punk creation, but it's, I'm not exactly. wild about the art. Okay. Yeah, that happens That's a lot. That's just me. That happens a lot. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember or uh, not. Let, Go ahead. Oh, and I also got uh, uh, Simon and Kirby's Fighting American, number one, from the same company that did Wolfenstein. And, let's see, The Greatest Adventure, which is the Edgar Rice Burroughs heroes all uniting in one grand adventure. And Hellboy and the BR... Uh, BPRD 1955. That sounds incredible. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great series. It's a, it's a great time to be a diesel punk. You know why? Why? Because people who are real diesel punks get a regular podcast once a week now. So <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> a little, right. A little. Ooh, hey, look here. I'm looking at this ad. Yeah. Sherlock Frankenstein in the Legion of Evil. That sounds awesome. It's like it could yeah. it could be really bad, really good, or so bad it's good. Exactly. That's what I like. That's what I like. So speaking about things that I like, you and I had uh, had an agenda that we wanted to go through tonight. And, yes, uh, absolutely. Where do you want to go first? What 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 do you what's on what's hot on your mind tonight? Well, you know, the the abysmal failure yeah. of 
Blade Runner 2049. You know, I feel... I feel... I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about this. Okay. Be, because, you know, I knew when we announced it on... Uh, and uh, we actually broke the story on Comic Stravaganza uh, three or four years ago. Um, actually, it may have been on Tales from the Geek when I was with them. And I knew when it was announced that they were doing a sequel... I knew from the moment I heard the announcement that it was doomed to fail. Yes, yes. And, you know, I said it on this, you know, on, on the Diesel Punk podcast several times and on Comic Extravaganza when we were doing that show that um, just I, nobody wanted to see this movie. Hmm. And, and I think I think really part of it is what I call the Matrix effect. Do you remember how perfect the first Matrix movie was? In my opinion, the Matrix was a perfect movie. And despite the fact that Keanu Reeves was the lead, it was, it was, it was perfect as a standalone film. And then the sequels ruined the magic, ruined the intrigue. And I think the same thing has happened with Blade Runner. Now, I, I was never a fan of Blade Runner. Right. I've watched it. I was confused by it. I've wondered, you know, what everyone's appeal for the movie was. I mean, I, it never was a box office success. It's never, been a was. Cult classic, never was. Never was. But, but you know, it's 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 had a solid cult following. What five different versions of it put sure, out over the years, sure. and um, it is a beautiful movie. I mean, visually, it's it's you know spellbinding. But the movie is confusing, and you know nobody really has any motivation for what they do. The whole replicants thing really never made any sense as a story. And this was Ridley Scott's movie, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was Ridley Scott's movie. Yeah. And it just, it never, I've watched it several times and I just, I don't enjoy it. It it doesn't make sense to me. And, And for the most part, most people agree with that. The studios agreed with it. And it was, it was a box office failure. And... Nobody wanted to see a sequel, but, but 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 part of the magic of the original movie was that hanging question at the end. Yes, was was Decker actually a replicate himself? Exactly. That's the and, thing. And, that's, know, yeah, that's the thing about the movie. Where there's a whole bunch of things and, that are really special about the movie, and and the thing is. Is that if you answer that question, you kill the magic of the first movie. So go ahead. That's right. That's right. And so this new movie in the trailer, right? They kill that question. They answer that question and kill the magic of the first movie. As soon as you saw Harrison Ford, an aged Harrison Ford, show up to talk to the new Blade Runner, I, it, it's it's done. Really, it's over. You You're think like, so? You think so? Don't you? Well, because. Weren't, weren't replicants supposed to have like a limited lifespan? Well, the whole point of um, Sean Young's character, Rachel, was that she was the first Nexus model with an open-ended 
lifespan, meaning she did not have a termination date that was already predetermined. That her expiration date was either she was either going to die of natural causes or she was going to live forever. That was the whole point of Tyrell creating Rachel was that she didn't have for as far as anybody knew she could die in four years. She can die in 16 or 30, whatever. And that was the whole point. And the thing is, is that you knew that Rachel, I mean, that was the whole point of, of, of the movie with Deckard running away from Rachel, knowing full well that, Hey, who knows how long she has and who knows how long any of us has in, in the original theatrical version with Harrison Ford's voiceover. Um, that was the whole point of Rachel. And Rachel was supposed to be a brand new Nexus model that was supposed to uh, take replicants in a new direction, which scared the shit out of everybody. And that's why she was a secret. And when she went rogue, that's why Tyrell and the LAPD kind of flipped out thinking, well, okay, well wait a minute, she's a, a rogue Nexus model that could live indefinitely. What the hell is this going to mean for humanity? And that's one of the reasons why... You know, she, you know, Deckard was tasked after, after he knocked off all the other replicants, he was, he was told by his, his chief or his sergeant, Hey, we got one more. Yeah. Rachel. Yeah. She's, she's, she's escaped Tyrell's, um, building. Yeah. Yeah. You got to go hunt her down. And when he finds her out in the apartment and finds out that, um, Edward James, almost his character, I can't remember his name, his name escapes me right now, was obviously there, could have knocked her off himself, but walked away, gave them a running start. That was the whole point of the movie, is because the thing is, it was just like, because Roy Batty, played by Rugger Hauer, at the very end, he cherished every, any life because life was precious, which was the main theme of the movie was that life is precious. And what, what did Rudger Hauer and the other Nexus models want more than anything else? Longer life. And, and in the end, that was, I mean, the thing is, one of the things that makes Blade Runner such a great film noir is that you can understand the so-called villain's perspective. Roy Batty, who was... He was built to do horrible things. He was a soldier. He was built to be a soldier who did horrible, questionable things. And at, towards the end of the life, all he wanted to do was to live longer and not be a soldier anymore. He didn't want to do what he was built to do, but he was forced to do it to survive, to find a way to live longer. And when he found his maker, he killed his maker because his maker says, nah, I don't feel like giving you more life because you've already lived. A, you lived a full life. You lived a, you know, the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you burned so very, very bright. You don't you don't need more life. You've lived a full life. And Roy's like, well, hell with this kills his maker. And at the end, when he's just about to die, he saves records, uh, Harrison Ford's life, Deckard's life before he's about to fall from that tall building, even after that awful fight scene that they had. And he said the whole thing like, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. 
All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. And with the understanding is that he finally understood how precious life is. And it's like he didn't want to kill anybody anymore or let anybody else die knowing how precious life is. And with Deckard running away with Rachel because he knew that they were going to be hunted, is just to say, life is precious. You know, fight, survive, run if you have to. Um, and for me, I think that Blade Runner is probably the original theatrical cut with Harrison Ford's narration that really makes the movie for me. I, I think it's it, it's probably in the top 10 favorite movies of mine. And it, it's, it's the mucking around with the movie that I think has made things so convoluted and why it's not the classic that I think that it should be. Um, I don't know what to say when, uh, when people say that they don't like it. It's like people who don't like anchovies and blue cheese. I understand people don't like anchovies and blue cheese. I happen to like them both. But I can understand why other people don't. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've tried to watch Blade Runner several times and, uh, you know, at the insistence of Larry Amiet and, um, you know, you just got to you just got to find the right version. He, yes. And, um, but, you know, I just maybe I'll, I'll watch it again. I've got it. I've got all five cuts on DVD. Right. So, uh, you know, maybe I'll I'll give it another try. But uh um, you know, visually, I thought it was great, and oh, individual yeah. performances were were amazing. Uh, Rutger Howard's performance was fantastic. He should have. He was cheated um, out of an Oscar win. He was cheated out of an Oscar. He should have won an Oscar for that performance. Well, for that matter, he should have won an Oscar for Lady Hawk. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think he's yeah. one, one of the most underappreciated uh, actors of our time. But that does not talk about. Blade Runner 2049. No. Okay. So, so did you want to see this movie? Did I want... Um, did you want a sequel? Here's, here's the thing. And I wrote this in my review, and you can read my review on the fedorachronicles.com uh, um, slash flicks. And it's there, in the, it's there in the index page, or at least it will be when so I get you, done here. So you have seen it. I I've have seen, seen it. it yet. I have seen it. And one of the first things I wanted to say about this movie is that it does not ruin any of the mystique of the first film, and it doesn't answer some of the, the questions that made the original Blade Runner so perfect. And, and Deckard sort of answers the question about whether or not he's a replicant or not in such a way as to say, what the hell do you care? I'm me, you're you. I am who I am. Why, do, why, why does it matter to you? It, why does it matter what I am or who I am? I was a cop. I did your job. And I was really good at it. Um, he never answers that question. He does. They do answer the question about his his love for Rachel, 
And he really loved Rachel. Now, was Rachel programmed to love him? Who knows? And it, it, that's not our business. The whole thing, the whole movie addresses the entire thing starting. And this is a question that was started with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. What responsibility do we have after we've played with, with life and creating new life? What responsibility do we have? And what kind of person does it make us, how we behave and how we treat this life that we create determines what kind of a person we are. Whether you're a parent or somebody who's mucking around with DNA in a lab somewhere or you're building robots or androids or AI, whatever. Whatever life you create, you have a responsibility to that life. And, the con- and, ha- and how that life responds to you is part and parcel of how you treat that life. And that's something that I don't think that here in the 21st century, I don't think that we've really sort of figured that out. I don't think that we've understood the fact that creating a slave race is wrong. Creating biological organisms to do with what we please and abuse that life is wrong. And the consequences is death. Now, I don't know whose death it is, but the consequences of mucking around with life, with reckless abandon, a reckless abandon is death. It's not, and it does not speak well for the human race. That's one of the things that Blade Runner 40, uh, 2049 says, and says it better than the original Blade Runner, and has said it better than a lot of other movies that so much of science fiction is just retelling of the original Mary Shelley story. What happens when the life that we create is abandoned and neglected and then runs amok? What happens? And why we should make sure that that doesn't happen? Okay, so the question comes then, having <clears throat> you having seen this film, why did it fail so miserably? It's a better movie than most audiences deserve. I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's like Dr. Shivago with androids and holograms and flying cars in a dystopian future, but in a good way. Dr. Shivago is like a long movie. It's a really long movie. It's longer. A lot of people don't have the patience for a movie like Dr. Dr. Shivago or... Um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, any of the old, like the classic epic movies. It's Blade Runner 2049 is an epic. And I don't think that unless it's a, it's a nonstop action movie, like a, like a Marvel movie, like the Avengers or something like that. Um, it's just too long for, for modern audiences, especially with the constant being barraged with social media and 30-second television commercials and drive-through where you can get food, you know, five minutes or less. Um, Modern audiences don't have the patience for this movie. And even though every single frame is beautiful, every single frame in this movie could be a work of art that you'd want to hang up in your house, um, it's too damn long. And, and for me, as a diehard Blade Runner fan, and when, when I, you know, in, 19, in the 1980s, there was really like three Harrison Ford movies that were in heavy rotation. The Empire Strikes Back, 
Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Blade Runner. And for a fan of, of, of the, the original Blade Runner, I will tell you it's too damn long. There were times when they could trim a couple of minutes. There's these long establishing shots. And it's, you get these long panoramic views of the um, beautiful or grotesque landscapes. And you get it. Excuse me. Excuse me. Jesus. <laughs> Bless you. God, there might be another one. Um, it's a long freaking movie. It's almost three hours. But it, uh, for somebody who just sat through it, it doesn't feel that long. I mean, when I walked out and I find out, I went to a movie that and it started at 7.30. I didn't get out until past 10. I had no idea that that much time had passed. It's like stepping into a time machine and coming out not realizing what you know, it was disorienting for me. Like, what? It's, it's, it's almost 11 o'clock. It's, it, it's, it, it was maddening. And it was you and you literally for a trip. It's the same thing with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Modern audiences will not sit down to a movie in a theater like 2001 and pack the theater the way that the, we used to. It, it's just never, you're never going to have a three hour long epic that's going to make a ton of dough unless it's like action packed X and it's, and it's, and it's fast moving. This is some, some moments are really fast paced and other moments are very sort of like, like I said, the long, beautiful panoramic views and with all these establishing shots. I get it. This is Los Angeles in the not too distant future, and it's, it's some parts are horrible. Some part some parts are terrific. In this future, uh, there are some beautiful parts of the city. There are some ugly parts of the city, and then and then there's the drive to this other city that is featured in the commercials. And I won't ruin anything because it's a gas when you finally see this other city, and. Yeah, you get it. This is the future. It's beautiful. It's one of the reasons why people love the original Blade Runner movie is because these long establishing shots. Um, and there are a lot of characters that are not likable. I think that um, Ryan Gosling's character, Kay, his girlfriend, Joy, and Harrison Ford are, are the only three likable characters in this movie. Everybody else, you can say, if these people died, I don't care. I don't care. And the MacGuffin in the movie, and I'm not going to spoil the MacGuffin. Um, she's a great character, but you don't realize how important that character is until the end of the movie. And there are so many, and there are there are so many mysteries that occur throughout the with throughout the movie. Um. And if I say anything about these here, and here's the thing, you don't want to say anything more about the plot because you don't want to spoil the plot for somebody else who hasn't seen it. And when this, and there's this sort of like, is he or isn't he part of the plot? And that goes on for, it, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a sub storyline in the movie that goes on for like, like an hour that in and of itself could have been in a, 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 a standalone movie. There are so many parts of the movie that it, they could, it, there are huge chunks of the movie that could have been a movie all by themselves or 
a 45-minute episode of The Twilight Zone or something like that. There's a lot going on in this movie. Um, I don't, I don't know what to say other than it's too, it's too much movie for one sitting. Well, that's interesting. So I, I, I am going to go see it. Um, I may even see it, uh, this, this Friday or Saturday night. Uh, I feel like, you know, as someone into, the diesel punk aesthetic, the retro futurism, and a fan of noir, I, I, I have to go support it, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, so so I'll uh, I'll give my feedback on um, on what I think, but you know the the tragedy of this film, Eric, is obviously you you liked it a lot, you and yeah. and that's great, but um, it it has already been called, you know, the flop of the decade, and um, the studio that made it uh, is the same same studio that did The Blind Side, Dolphin Tail, um, uh, the uh, uh, ran- not Ransom, but maybe it was Ransom with Mel Gibson and the Kidnapped Girls, and uh, they've they've had a string of some pretty successful films, and this this sequel to Blade Runner had one of the largest budgets yeah, yeah. in Hollywood history. And this studio, because I know some of the people who worked worked for the studio uh, in the finance department said that uh, the, the entire future of the studio hung on the success of this single movie. And that if it didn't succeed, there would be no more studio. And you know they're they're looking for jobs today. Huge mistake. Um, it, that was a huge mistake on the part of this studio. Huge yeah. mistake. And 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 it is a shame. But you know I'll go see it, and after I see it, I'll I'll share my uh, my thoughts. But you know I I haven't seen any buzz about it in the media. Um, you know on social media, no one's talking about it. Nobody wants um, to spoil it. Nobody. Nobody wants to spoil the movie for other film goers. Because the thing well, is, is that there's a whole bunch of like, if I say one thing, if I say, oh God, how can I say this? First of all, if you spoil a movie, you are persona non grata. People will stop following you on social media if you spoil a movie. I'm trying to think, perfect example, War of the Roses starring... Um, Michael um, Michael Douglas Kathleen, Douglas right Michael Douglas yep. Kathleen Turner last great movie Kathleen Turner ever did and Danny DeVito and a lot of people went into thinking that oh it's a sequel to um, Romancing the Stone which it, it wasn't and the thing is is that Arsenio Hall spoiled the ending of the movie and he was done studios did not want to send people to 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 represent their movies to Arsenio Hall um, because he spoiled the movie and that movie bombed because you know how it ended and you spoil a movie if I spoiled this this movie people may not go want to go to my website anymore because they know that I'm going to spoil a good movie a good it's a it's a great mystery movie it's like if I told you at the end of the big sleep the butler did it okay 
And the big sleep was a big, huge blockbuster that everybody was wait, just dying to go see. And I spoil it. I'm an a-hole. It's like the M. Night Shyamalan movies. If I spoil the ending of Signs or The Sixth Sense, I'm an a-hole. I mean, years later, we can talk about that movie and how it ended and how in The Sixth Sense, Bruce Willis was, was dead all along. But if right like the weekend it's released and I spoil it, you're an a-hole and people stop following you. People don't like you anymore. I don't want to spoil the sequel to Blade Runner. But what I will tell you, I think the movie is going to have legs when it gets into the foreign markets and when it gets out on home video. Is it enough to save this? People are going to want to see this at home because it's so darn long. You want to be able to pause it in certain spots, go get some popcorn, take a potty break, sit back. You don't want to miss a minute of it because it's, it is, it's, it's a retro-futuristic film noir mystery slash suspense. And you have to watch every moment of it so you don't miss anything, so you don't miss any of the clues. There, I know that the guy sitting next to me or sitting at the other end of the, uh, the aisle from me he was in agony. He had to get up and take up he, but he didn't want to miss anything. That's the kind of movie it was, for me anyway. Well, that that's uh, that's interesting. I I'll have to give it the uh, Johnny bathroom test because I've got the world's smallest bladder. Right. So if if I can sit through any movie without having to go use the restroom, it, it's a sign of a, a really great film. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Yeah, the last, you know what? The last movie I went to see, I can't, I, I'm almost ashamed to say this. I, I haven't been to the movies since I saw Dunkirk. Yeah, yeah. And and that's not like me. I, I'm, a, I'm a movie fanatic. Right. And I love going to the movies. But here lately, been so busy and, you know, uh, nothing has been so, you know, must see that, that I can't wait. Um, I've watched a lot of movies on video, but uh, and Netflix, but I haven't gone out to the movies since Dunkirk. Yeah, and you know what? Dunkirk didn't hold me hold my attention. I actually had to go up. I had to get up and use the restroom twice during Dunkirk. Right, right. And I will tell you what was wrong with Dunkirk. Do you want me to tell you what was wrong with Dunkirk? Because I'll tell you the non. Go ahead. The non-linear storytelling. Where oh that that was very difficult to follow. Yeah, it, it didn't have to be like that. And I, yeah, well, you know that's Christopher Nolan's thing, and uh, it it was really cool in uh, Memento. It was really cool in uh, The Prestige. Uh, it was kind of neat in uh, Inception. It just didn't work in this movie. Hell no, that's not the way you tell a World War II story. That's that's just not how you do it. And the thing is that it was like, oh, well, Christopher Nolan has made billions of dollars for all these studios. What do I know about movies? Well, I've been watching movies, you know, for about 46 years. I I think I know what I'm talking about by now. I, I think that he I think he did the story of Dunkirk a disservice. It's a beautiful movie, but he should not have played it out like that in that non linear fashion. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of movies that I've been wanting to go see. And, and uh, 
Blade Runner 2049 will be one of them. Um, I would love to see the new Kingsman movie. But, you know, there are movies coming, Eric, Yeah. that I can't wait for. Um, Murder on the Orient Express yeah. looks phenomenal. Uh, the Shape of Water from del toro have you seen the trailer for I this have, thing i've seen the trailer for it and and there are so many t- trailers out there and there are times that was just like the trailer's enough for me that's that beautiful <laughs> you know i mean it was just it's a beautiful trailer i mean the thing is is that do we even want to talk a minute or two about the 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 star wars uh, last jedi um trailer that was uh, released upon the public last night yeah you know uh we can do that um i'm a all of our listeners know that I'm a huge Star Wars fan. For yep. me, Star Wars is oxygen. And um, I'm, I'm really intrigued. Um, I, I can't wait to see this movie. And it's not like, it's not like this, I don't know how to explain it. When, when Phantom Menace came out, you know, we had been through the dark times oh, yeah. without Star Wars for yeah. so long. It was like this burning mania to yes, see that film. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, th- then Force Awakens come out, comes out and everyone's really interested to see the new direction. Yep. But not quite the same mania as Phantom Menace because uh, people who didn't like Phantom Menace are kind of reserving judgment. Right. You know, yes, I'm going to go see it, but I'm not going to lose my mind over it because the last time that happened, I didn't like the outcome. Right. Um, by the way, I love Phantom Menace. It's one of my favorite of the Star Wars saga. Okay. I think it's a beautiful movie. Visually, um, it hits all the right notes with the uh, the styling and, and yeah. uh, nods and homages to the source material. But that's another story altogether. So the one thing that, that struck me about this was I, I want to see it more out of intrigue than anything. Right. Because this trailer had a very familiar feel to me. Oh, yeah? In that it it really feels like tonally it's going to have a very similar to feel to Empire Strikes Back. I thought the exact same thing. I, I, yeah, I, I, so, remember, I remember in the summer of 1980 seeing the trailer... For the Empire Strikes Back for the first time, I think I almost wet myself. And um, I knew there was a new Star Wars movie coming out, but I didn't know anything else about it. It looked like bad things were going to happen to all the good guys. Bad things were going to happen to everybody. Um, and true to form, everybody got their, sort of, their proverbial butts kicked. It's and it and it, and to this day, it's the best Star Wars movie ever made. The Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie ever made. I would dare say it's in the top ten best movies ever made. Oh, absolutely, period. absolutely. Um, but the but the, the I will say this about the prequels, episodes one through three. They all make Return of the Jedi a better movie with the backstory about Luke and Leia's mom. But I'm not a huge fan of Return of the Jedi because I don't feel as if the movie really starts until Luke and Vader are on the catwalk on the moon of Endor 
and 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 Luke starts with this, you know, yes, Father, and he says, oh, so you accept the truth, and Luke says, I I accept the truth that your name was once Anakin Skywalker, and Darth Vader says that name no longer has any meaning for me. That for me is when Return of the Jedi really starts. The whole thing with George Lucas trying to up the ante with the cantina and doing it over again in Jabba's palace with Jim Henson's Muppets. That was BS. Um, but the movie really didn't start for me until that catwalk scene. Um, all the background information though, that we get in seeing a young Obi-Wan Kenobi, young Anakin and their mentor and everything that happened. And you could see the parts where Palpatine is playing two sides against the middle. That's phenomenal story making. The prequels would have been a better movie by far were not for Jar Jar Binks. I'll leave it at that. We can have that discussion another day, but <laughs> that's a, that that's two hours in itself. Yeah, yeah, it is because um, I'm I'm actually a Jar Jar apologist, and um, uh, I can give a lot of reasons why. But we're not going to go on to that tonight. I will just say that um, because of the tone of the of the uh, trailer for The Last Jedi, knowing how the Star Wars movies tend to rhyme, um, I, and and they, they set it up to make you think some bad things are going to happen yeah. to everybody. And we, we all know that sometimes, especially these days, trailers completely lie to us. Um, so... You know, it's anybody's guess what what this film really will entail. But you know, if if I were to wager a guess, I, I have a feeling that it's gonna feel a lot like Empire Strikes Back. And I'll tell you, Eric, when I saw Empire Strikes Back as a kid, it made me mad. Really, I really hated it. Oh my gosh, I hated that movie. I was pissed off. Like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Now I look back at it and it's it's brilliant. You know, it's it's the best Star Wars movie made. Um, and and I would say maybe second to that movie is is for me Rogue One. Yeah. But um, but uh, th- this one I don't know how I'm going to react to it, but I'm really anxious to see it. And that leads me to uh, bring up something before we move on to our next topic. There you go. I heard about I heard about a new service. So for all of us movie buffs, I know we talked about Filmstruck a couple of months ago. We sure did. Um, and and that's awesome. But for those of us who love the movie theater experience, and and I'm one of these guys. I would much rather go to the theater and spend you know, 10, 11 bucks to have that, that giant screen experience in, in the auditorium style seating. There's something magical about that to me um, that you don't get at home because, no. you know, when you're watching a movie at home, the dogs can be barking, your wife can interrupt you. I mean, she doesn't know how important this is, right? Um, and, and the kids can ask questions or get into a fight. It's just, I hate it. Right. So, I want to go to the movies. Well, there's a new service called Movie Pass. 
Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. And this, no, this is not a paid commercial. We're not reading a script. <laughs> Go ahead, No, John. I am super excited about this. I just found out about it over the weekend. MoviePass is a subscription service, $9.95 a month, unlimited movies in the theater. Are you kidding? No. And here's, here's the thought process behind it. So most people see only, on average, three to four movies a year. Right. So the idea is that those three to four moviegoers a year will turn into 12, 10 to 12 movies per year. And the, the theaters... Um, on average, are still making their their the ticket price because most people are not going to see more than one movie a month on average. Um, and where theaters really make their money is in the concessions. You're right, they do. They sure do. So, so for someone like me, though, who is obsessed with movies, for nine ninety five a month or nine ninety nine a month, ten bucks a month. I'm going to the movies two and three times a weekend. Oh, okay. Now, here's a question for you. Can you go yeah. on, like, premiere night, like the night a movie opens? Yes. Now, now the, here's, here's, the, uh, here's the gist. You can only go to one movie a day, and you can't use the pass to go see the same movie a second time. Oh, okay. All right. So, so uh, yeah, that's fair. That's yeah, fair. Yeah, And And the, the idea is... You know, for people like me who are 12 and 13 movies a year on average, right? Um, I might become a 24 movie uh, average, and, and the, the theater is still going to make their money on the extra dollars I spend on the concessions oh, absolutely. that I wouldn't have normally spent when I'm paying full price for a ticket. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's, I think that's an incredible idea. I think that that's that's probably what I'm going to do um, late, later this year. Yeah, so uh, check that out. Um, now, th the one thing that I did find out um, is that AMC Theaters, which I think is in your area, um, they have uh, chosen not to participate in the uh, MoviePass program. They, they're they trying to create their own. Okay, all right. Which, good which you know, good luck okay. To good luck to them. Yeah, but Regal Cinemas, Cinemark, um, yeah, the, you know, Movie Pass. I'm, yeah, I'm all in, and um, you know, I can't wait to see Thor, Ragnarok, The Last Jedi, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, The Shape of Water. Gosh, there's so many more coming out this this yeah yeah fall and Christmas. Uh, there's a new Pixar movie coming out called. Um, uh, is it Pixar or DreamWorks? It's an animated film called The Ballerina. I, um, you know, there you go. I mean, that's, that's one because the thing is, I don't have young kids anymore, so I'm not exposed to that uh, that line of movies. But hey, I mean, hey, I mean, we'll see. I mean, it could be terrific. I think that, um, yeah, I think that the whole thing is that somebody has to figure out a way to get butts back into seats again, and I think that that's a, a, a great. 
a great idea. And if they're listening to the podcast, hey, become a sponsor. You know, <laughs> send yeah. us some, send us some cabbage our way. So yeah, that that is completely uh, unsolicited endorsement of Movie Pass. They did not pay us or ask us to uh, promote them. I just heard about this service this weekend, and I think it's a phenomenal idea. And um, you know. I'm going to take advantage of it because I like to go to the movies. Yeah. So our next topic, and this is a hard topic to, to, to broach, STD. <laughs> Let's talk about STD, shall we? Can we talk I've about... I've not seen it. Okay. For folks who don't know and the folks that are remaining who have not shut this podcast off... Uh, I'm talking about the CBS All Access STD, Star Trek Discovery. And I think John and I have one thing in common, is that when Star Trek The Next Generation was on, uh, it was a huge part of our lives, and it was a phenomenon. It was a, it was a cultural phenomenon. Yes. And the, my beef that I have with the instar- entire Star Trek franchise is that once upon a time, science fiction conventions were science fiction conventions. It was a great place to meet the artists who painted the covers of our favorite books. It was a great place to meet the artists, the writers, the authors who wrote our favorite books. And maybe occasionally a star from a movie would show up. And then then the C word happened, meaning creation, creation conventions. And they turned... You were about to say, which was your favorite Star, Star Trek series? Deep Space Nine. Okay. Loved Deep Space Nine. Yep. And uh, the reason was is because Deep Space Nine was really uh, good Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, it, it really was. <laughs> and, you know, the, the thing that I always loved about Star Wars is, you know, this sense of this used universe. Right. Yeah. That that things had, you know, broken down and or, you know, there were parts of the universe that weren't the shining city on the hill. And that's kind of always the problem that I had with with Star Trek is that everything was so clean and pristine and just wasn't real world. And for some people, that's that's the escapism that they wanted. But to me, it wasn't relatable. And here here comes Deep Space Nine where it's all of a sudden we're seeing the used universe portion of the Star Trek universe. Right. You know, Bajoran uh, or Bajor is a, is a, a planet that has been under the rule of tyranny by the, the Cardassians. Uh, the, the space station is, is old and clunky. It's heavy steel, a lot of art deco design in that. Um, when you watch Deep Space Nine, you see a lot of uh, the movie Metropolis. Yes, you do. In yeah. the in yeah. the design of that space station, and all of the characters came with a really rich backstory. Unlike Next Generation, and unlike the original Star Trek series, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we just th- those characters were kind of dropped in and. You know, one of the things about Star Trek The Next Generation was that until Deep Space Nine came along, 
those characters ended every episode at the same place they began. Right. It was like the, at, by the end of the episode, the reset button had been pushed. Yeah, there, there wasn't any real substantial character growth. And it wasn't until after Deep Space Nine changed that because those characters did grow. They changed. Jadzia Dax died. Yeah. Um, you know, there, was, there were consequences. And um, once, once the Star Trek creators started down that path – it bled over into the next generation because you will yeah. remember they were running simultaneously, right? And um, that's when we got the Borg. Yeah. No. Well, hold, on, on hold on a second. Wait a minute. Next generation. Um, it was it was the third season of the Next Generation when Gene Roddenberry was starting to get sick. It was just be- when he stopped being hands on every day. That's when the show really took off. The Borg were introduced in the second season, and that was kind of like, oh, we got to see more of them. And in the third season, the show really sort of took off in a direction that led to Deep Space Nine. And I hate to say this, Trekkies are going to hate me for saying this. Star Trek did not really sort of take off on its own when it started doing the grittier stories and the more dramatic stories until after Gene Roddenberry died. Or when he was out of the picture completely, and then he died, and then it really sort of took off into the phenomenon that it became. Wait a minute. I, I, I'm, I'm, actually, you reminded me. I'm, I'm remembering this now. You're right. You're right. So the Borg storyline with Picard getting assimilated did happen before Deep Space Nine, and yes. that was actually the, uh, the, the fulcrum to launch Deep Space Nine, right. because Cisco was, uh, I think, first uh, number one on a ship yeah. that uh, was uh, destroyed by the Borg. His wife was killed by the Borg while under command of Picard uh, or Locutus. And um, so Cisco hated Picard and wanted to kill him and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway... You you had all these rich characters, right? You know, with with Odo, the security chief, who had been, you know, the security chief for the Cardassians, and now suddenly he's on the 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 side of the angels. But you know, he's lived this tortured life as this shapeshifter, and and Major Kira, who you know has been enslaved, and now uh, ha- and and you know, uh, Doctor. Uh, Dr. Bashir, who is seeking adventure and fame and fortune, and, you know, Jadzia Dax, who has this symbiote that has lived for a thousand years. And there, there was just all this richness yeah. that we didn't get. Um, yeah. and, and we got introduced to the Ferengi, who, in my opinion, are, are maybe one of the coolest alien races. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the, but it, the 99 what, rules of acquisition. Yeah, and the thing is, is that it wasn't until Deep Space Nine where the Ferengi were really sort of fleshed out the way that they were supposed to be in Star Trek The Next Generation, which I thought was really cool. Um, and there were a lot of things. There were a lot of things about um, Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine that was you, they were not afraid to do real thought-provoking, scary stories. That really made you think and made you want to be a better person. 
Star Trek The Next Generation, I re- specifically remember when I was watching the episode Tapestry, where Picard has to go back and change something about his past. And when he changed something about his past and he saw how his life would have been if he took the road to the right instead of the left, and he wasn't the kind of person he wanted to be. And for me, that's when I decided I'm going to go back to college. That, that episode, Tapestry, was a watershed moment in my life where my life changed for the better because of Star Trek The Next Generation. I went back to college and I, and I excelled. I don't think that would have happened without past, uh, Tapestry, that episode with, um, on The Next Generation. And I don't think that there's really been a lot of other television shows that have inspired people to become better people because of the characters and the circumstances they're in. I think a lot of people went to college and became doctors and engineers and scientists um, and craftsmen and tradespeople because of Star Trek or Star Trek The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. I don't think that there are people out there who have become such and such and so and show for any other show. I can't I can't think of any any show that's had that kind of effect on people. Television show, I, I would agree with that. Um, you're, you're probably right. So uh, have you seen the new show Discovery? Uh, you know what? As a matter of fact, the reason why we got CBS All Access was so that I could actually watch the show because for a whole host of reasons, it's the one thing that my father and I watched no matter what happened in our lives. When my dad and I were homeless, we had a, a, a TV that ran on, on uh, 12 volts and ran, uh, ran on a car battery, essentially. So when we were living in the back of our van... We would actually drive to locations to where you can tune in and catch Star Trek over the airwaves. And that was awesome. That was that was and that's what kept us going. That was the motivation for us to keep going was, you know, where are we going to park and watch Star Trek this Saturday? Um, so for, for me, it was a huge part of my life. And the thing is, my dad died this past June. If you didn't know, you know. And it was like, that was like shocking to me because now, now I'm the dad. Now I'm filling in the role he should have filled with my own boys. And I, and driving around and seeing all the locations where he and I used to live uh, on the same weekend, the same, the 30th anniversary when Star Trek, the next generation premiered (laughs) before we became homeless and where we were living in, in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. And there was this trip down Nostalgia Lane, and I remember what the future was. And I wanted a piece of that to give to my kids, but in a better environment, in a better situation. I started watching Star Trek Discovery because of the nostalgia that I had for 1987 and, and, and the seven years after that. I had huge, huge nostalgia for that period. And I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I am thoroughly disappointed with Star Trek Discovery um, for a whole host of reasons. And I don't know where to begin. Well, <clears throat> well, I'm hearing that from a lot of people. I, I have not seen it myself. I've, you know, although I was, you know, a fan of Next Generation, I was a huge fan of Deep Space Nine. 
um, was not a Voyager fan, and I'm really not a fan of the original series. Um, and uh, I liked Enterprise uh, because I like uh, Scott Bakula, but I never really got to watch it on a regular basis because that was the show that they moved around and never gave it a permanent home and, and effectively killed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I wasn't, uh, you know, thrilled or, or like super excited to see discovery and certainly not to the, uh, to the extent that I'm going to pay for another streaming service just to see it. So I haven't seen it yet. Um, but I have seen the Orville and I got to tell you, I love this show. Okay. Uh, have you seen the Orville yet? Uh, no, actually I, I have not yet. And I've been waiting to see it on Amazon prime or on Netflix. Cause like you said, do I really want to spend? Cause the thing is my wife and I don't have cable. We made the conscious decision to get rid of cable. And if there's a show that we wanted to watch, we'd buy the episodes. Um, when they were released, our show now is NCIS and NCIS New Orleans. That's the one, those, that's NCIS, fill in the blank, is that's the family favorite show. That's the one show that we all gather around to watch. So, and, or, or Doctor Who. When Doctor Who's on, that's what we watch, or Star Wars Rebels. We really sort of have one big show that we watch together um, uh, in syndication, meaning Amazon, and we buy all the episodes. We actually buy the episodes that we watch, and we have them forever. So the show better be damn good if we're going to buy every episode to watch it on Amazon. Uh, well, <clears throat> Orville is on broadcast TV. Right. So if you, if you do have an antenna, uh, you can watch it on broadcast TV. Uh, and it's, I'm watching it on Hulu. Um, and I got to tell you, Eric, it is, for me, it, it's like Star Trek The Next Generation, but with relatable characters and circumstances. Um, these are these are like people that I know kind of characters. Um, and and you know, you think something coming from Seth MacFarlane is gonna be, you know, crass humor and uh, you know, sexual innuendo. And it's really not. Uh, as it turns out, um, it, he he actually pitched it to Paramount yeah, I keep to be a, a real deal Star Trek series and and they they turned it down and so he said well fine i'll i'll make it more of a an homage or parody it's it's very it's got a very similar feel to galaxy quest um but um a little bit more serious than that it's really not a comedy it's it is a drama with real life humorous situations do, do you know what I mean when I say oh, that? Oh, I sure do. I, I mean, it sounds like the next generation. I mean, the next generation had had be real belly laughs, and there were episodes that made me cry like a baby. And we, because I cared about the characters. Like when Tasha Yar yeah. died in the next generation, I felt that. When bad things happened to these characters, when Captain Picard was abducted by the Borg and was made one of them. Uh, that really affected me. 
Um, I cared about what happened in the next generation. I ha- I cared about what happened in Deep Space Nine because I mean every every season there was the let's try and kill O'Brien episode, whereas Miles O'Brien went through these horrible things and almost you know would almost die or whatever. And that was kind of like a, it was like a running gag, sort of like you know that this is it, this is going to be the episode where they almost kill O'Brien, and it, but the thing is, you you cared what happened to Miles O'Brien, you cared, be, because he was our representative. Yeah, if if, you, if it, you think about this, he was the every man, the every guy, the average Joe, right? Um, the the working class stiff. Yes, he's a brilliant engineer, but. He had that very down-to-earth, blue-collar sensibility to him that average Americans really could connect to. He was like my grandfather, Dick Tuttle. If you can imagine, he, it was like watching my grandfather in space. That's the kind of person that he was. Um, and, you know, he grew up in, like, what, Ireland? Um, my grandfather's parents were from Ireland. There was that kind of like that, that rough and tumble working class, but still a classy guy. Do you know what I mean? Like he didn't, um, he didn't take a lot of BS Uh, and he's like a blue collar worker in Star Trek. That's yeah. And yeah. and, And, and he was a family man, right? I mean, he had a wife and kid and you know, all he really cared about was, uh, doing his job, finishing his shift, and going home to his wife and kid. Right. Yeah. And we all relate to that. Yeah. And it was a great show for that reason. Um, And it was... Where is that? Where is the... uh, This is one of the things that Star Trek Discovery does not have yet. It has a main character who's not the captain. I don't relate to... I, I, I relate to the redhead... Um, who's fresh out of the academy or she's still a cadet and she's drafted into the service because, well, there's a war on. But I don't, I, there's some things about this show I don't get. How come this isn't Star Trek the third generation? How come this is not a Star Trek series that takes place 30 or 60 years after Picard and company have retired and passed away? How come this isn't set in a future after the next generation because the thing is there's things that it's too futuristic to be um a prequel to the original series it and it's too futuristic to be a a prequel to um the next generation it doesn't make any sense because it's just too futuristic as it were does that make sense does that make any sense yeah, yeah, they get they got the textures and the tones all wrong for the setting that it's supposed to be in. I I get that, and the the nice thing is, what what you're looking for, you will find in the Orville. Um, and and I I watched the first three episodes last night, uh, just one right after the other, and and just really loved it and. And there were a couple of scenes that made me laugh out loud. Now, that is my, one of the aggravations that my wife has with me is that very few things. It's not that I don't find them funny. 
It's just I don't find them so funny that they make me laugh out loud. Right. Like, you know, like she's a big fan of a lot of stand-up comics. She loves Kevin Hart. And I watch Kevin Hart, and I'm just like, okay, where's the joke? Right. Or 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 Larry the Cable Guy. I'm like, okay, he's funny, but uh, I, I've had enough. Yep. Yep. So 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 you know when something is so funny that it makes me laugh out loud, it's it's just a rare thing, and and I find myself laughing out loud in in the Orville, and it's not this slapstick comedy kind of thing. It's just you know the the natural situational humor that happens when you know n- normal people relatable people are thrown together in extraordinary circumstances yeah yes yes exactly um and there's a lot of comedy that for me that just doesn't make it either but i mean uh dana carvey did a, a net netflix special that i thought was hysterical and he does this there's one routine where it's like, what is what was Hitler like behind the scenes? And it's, it's in horrible taste, but it's funny as hell, um, which I, I, I mean, I think you would laugh out loud. I don't know if other people would, um, but it's like this is what's missing in a lot of science fiction. And I think this also gets back to what we were saying earlier about Blade Runner. There's with the exception of three characters. um. And one of them isn't even real. But you relate to them. You understand their plight. You know what they're going through to some extent. And But the thing is, everybody else, I don't care. I don't care if these other people die. In Star Trek Discovery, everybody's an a-hole. Everybody's a jackass. The most human person on the ship is not even human. And he's, he's got to stick up his bum. And there's not there used to be laugh out loud moments in the original series and in the next generation and Deep Space Nine, as dark as Deep Space Nine was, you loved all the characters. I don't admire anybody on Discovery. I don't care about anybody (laughs) on Discovery. I hope everybody dies. That's an awful thing to say. But that's a big problem. There's this one, like I said, the redhead cadet, she reminds me of my wife, Carol, and my wife was in her 20s. I hope she's the only one who survives. I hope that everybody else dies and and we see her 10 years later as the captain of the Discovery because everybody else is dead and we don't care. We don't care. Everybody is a jerk. And it was good riddance. Goodbye. Thanks for playing. That's a problem with the TV show. When Eric wants everybody to die, except for the cute redhead that reminds him of his wife, you got a crap show. Do, do you think, Eric, that one of the problems with the Star Trek franchise in general is that really they've forgotten what people like about Star Trek? Like, like maybe they're trying to shape it into something that they think people like but is so far afield from the from the actual concept that that it it's missing or or is it just that they've created too much 
um, division in the storylines because now you've got this series taking place in the original Star Trek timeline. Right. But three movies recently that created an entire new timeline. And quite honestly, I got to tell you, Eric, I'm a fan of the movies. You are or you're not? I really like. You like? uh, No, I am. You like the J.J. Abrams movies? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Okay. I I especially like the third one. Okay. The third one was my favorite one, uh, Into Darkness. Right. uh, Which I I was surprised by because there was nothing in the trailer that made me want to see it. Right. But then when I did see it, I was like, wow, this is a really good movie. I I really enjoyed this. Um, but, But I know a lot of. So they made a new kind of revived a fandom in me, you know, made me a new fan all over. But I know a lot of people really hated that are trying to, maybe they're, maybe they're trying to play fan service and give fans what they think they want. And fans, you know, get that and are rejecting it or, or maybe they're just missing the mark altogether. They've never seen an episode of the original series. I don't think they've ever seen an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. I think that everybody is fresh off the boat of watching the J.J. Abrams movies. I don't think they understand character development quite. Um, Okay, this is a work in progress. But the thing is, is that three episodes into all the Star Trek series, you pretty much knew who everybody was and you cared about all the characters only after the first three episodes of each series. And with the exception of Michelle, what's uh, Michael, what's her face? Um, Soren. Um, I, I think that's his name. Captain Orca. I think his name is, I think the name of the captain is either Captain Ahab or Captain Orca. I'm not sure. Larka, Lorca. I, I can't tell you the names of any of the characters and I've seen uh, four episodes of it. And with the exception of the redhead, I, I don't care. I may, I may seriously. I mean, I we may cancel CBS All Access or keep watching it for other shows and not bother watching another uh, another Star Trek episode because the thing is that it was like they do this thing called um, oh virtue signaling. Whereas it's like, uh, okay, we understand. You're trying to tell me that he's gay, but he's not gay, and you're trying to make a comment about. Trump, who's been president for how many months? And you're, you're, you're trying to talk about, you know, um, Trump supporters, you know, by making them Klingons. And the Klingons have this this motto, remain Klingon, and they're, and they're anti-Federation because they want to preserve their culture. I think that preserving your culture would be an okay thing, I guess. But I don't, I don't understand why it is that they have to politicize every episode and remind you of how much the, the, the director and the producer and all the people behind the scenes hate Donald Trump. I don't know why you have to remind me of that in a Star Trek sh- series that takes place 300 years in the future. It makes no sense. Yeah, that, that, that's a shame. Well, I, I will tell you, when you do get to see the Orville, I think you will find everything you're looking for. 
I, I hope so. I, I really do. And I'm, I, I cannot tell you how disappointed I am in Discovery. And the thing is that it was just like, I hope that they turn it around. Oh, and I'm, I'll give Orville a try when it shows up on Netflix. That I, I promise you, I'll give, I'll, I'll do that. Now, the final topic that we wanted to, now, do we have a, a time for the final topic? It sounds like your, your, your family just showed up. Um, uh, my dogs are barking at something. I don't know what they're going crazy about, but uh, we got a new dog. Oh, that's way. awesome! Yeah, Jax. There you go. Uh, yeah, and he is a. Uh, I think he's a, a terrier mix. We don't really know. I think he's a mix of fox terrier and pit bull. There you go. Hey, you know pit bull. He's a he's he's a little guy, but he's stocky and solid. Yeah. Um, and he could jump, man. Holy cow, can he jump? Yeah. I th- but um. So. The final topic that we wanted to talk about, we want to talk about your dogs in the diesel diesel punk <laughs> universe. Send us stories about your dogs and how are your dogs diesel punks um, in our Facebook group, Diesel Punks. I think that's one of the questions that we wanted to bring up here and sort of include Blade Runner, um, STD, the Orville. Um, what is it about people who seem to think that diesel punk is only about dystopia? And do we really like dystopia um, movies? Do we really like dystopian futures in the movies? And why is that? What's what's up with that? Well, I'll tell you, me personally, I do not really like dystopian films um, in general. Uh, not a fan of Mad Max, Waterworld. Um, maybe that's part of why I wasn't into Blade Runner. Uh, you know, I'm not the, the postman. Eh. You know, even the Terminator movies, just I'm just not into that whole vibe. Uh, now, I know some people may say, well, Johnny, but you're a Star Trek or a Star Wars fan. Isn't that a dystopian future? I don't really think so. I think it's more about a uh, well, first of all, it's not the future. It's a long time ago. But um it's really more about a um, a society in transition. Yes, yes. They they've not reached a dystopian or apocalyptic status. They're um, they're they're they're. It's kind of like post World War II. Um, it's almost like if you know what if you think about it like this, Star Wars is. Man in the High Castle. It really is. There are aspects to it that is very much Man in the High Castle, including if you if you take the prequel movies and the Clone War movies, especially not the movies. the The Clone War movie was awful, but the series itself was fantastic, especially the last two seasons, one of which you can only get on Netflix. Um, it is. It's it's space World War Two or it's space. You know what it is. It's the Spanish Civil War. If you had know anything about the Spanish Civil War, and you should, especially if you're a diesel punk, you should you should brush up on your history about the the second. Uh, I'm sorry, the Spanish Civil War, which took place. It was the in between war. It's the forgotten war between World War One and World War Two, which actually set the stage for World War Two and the rise of fascism in all of Europe. Yeah, so so I think that's why you know I, I dig 
the Star Wars movies because of those parallels. But, you know, in terms of dystopian films, I'm just I'm really not a fan. And I understand that there are a lot of people in the diesel punk community that like their diesel punk to be, you know, post-apocalyptic and dystopian. But, you know, truthfully, Eric, as as I was thinking about this this weekend when I was at Imaginarium, because I did a, you know, I did my Diesel Punk 101 panel, um, and it's really more of a workshop. And I was, you know, kind of going through the list of Diesel Punk media, movies in particular, and it occurs to me that really there aren't any quintessential Diesel Punk movies that truly are dystopian or post-apocalyptic. Um, Dark City was the only one that came to mind. Um, now, now, someone might say, um, what is it, uh, the, the City of Lost Children? Yeah, okay. But, but I've not seen that, so, okay. so I don't know. Um, but, you know, out of the ones that, you know, come up over and over and over, you know, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, it's a hopeful film. Captain America, First Avenger, uh, even Peter Jackson's King Kong, you know, all, yeah. all of those movies have a relatively grounded, hopeful feeling to them. Um, you know, what we would call that autizian diesel punk. And, and it's really only Dark City that I think about that has that more dystopian feeling. Yeah. Maybe maybe Sucker Punch to some degree. Um, but but that's so much, you know, a dream within a dream within a dream that I, I don't know that that counts. So, so I, I'm not exactly sure where this idea of dystopianism and post-apocalyptic themes comes from in diesel punk. No. Do you know what I'm saying? I think the issue that I have is that a lot of people like to diminish diesel punk by calling it the anti-steampunk, meaning that, um, and this woman, Aja Romero, wrote this, article um uh mad max is diesel punk or, or something to that effect and the thing is is that she tried to make it sound like everything good that's retro futurism is steampunk and everything that is negative and dirty is diesel punk and and the thing is for the woman who wrote um beginner's guide to diesel punk how could she be so wrong and not know that's not what diesel punk is Diesel Punk is trying to carry on the aesthetic of the 1930s and 40s into a, a, another possible future or a, 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 another present, as it were. We're living in the 21st century. We are all trying to carry on the 1930s and 40s jazz era aesthetic. And we'd, I don't want dystopia. I, don't think, I can't think of anybody who does. And I think it's because of that people trying to elevate steampunk by diminishing diesel punk they're they're at fault they're the reason why we are where we are right now well and you just said something that that strikes me as kind of profound actually you know when you think about the actual diesel era 
the the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, those decades are actually marked by unparalleled optimism in the future. Yes. Even during the Great Depression, people had a, a very forward-looking optimism that things would get better, that eventually happy days are here again. Yeah. And and even in the midst of World War II, there was this overarching sense of the innate goodness in the fight against the Nazis and that the good guys would win and we would protect what's good and right in the world. And, and you know, getting into the 50s, you know, just – it was kind of this post celebration of that. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I, I don't see anything in the aesthetics, in the culture, fashion, or sensibilities of the diesel era that really matches up with dystopianism. I don't understand it. I never understood it. And I, I will fall back on an earlier position that the reason why people do that is because they're trying to put down diesel punk to elevate steampunk, and it doesn't work like that. You cannot, uh, you can't elevate yourself by putting somebody else in the dirt. It doesn't work like that. Um, and I think that there's a, a lot of people who try and do that. I think that they do it because they have a, an inferiority complex. Whereas um, there were people in the 20s and 30s. Um, and and even the 50s, especially the 50s, where people were really trying to make the future happen um, and were actually doing something about it. Whereas during the 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 steampunk era, um, I which I think we call like the what the late 1800s or leading up to World War One, I, I think that people were just trying to get by and just be like be in the moment and with the exception of some uh, visionaries like uh, uh, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and uh, even a, a couple decades earlier, Mary Shelley. Nobody was really thinking about the future. I I think that the, the steampunk era um, was sort of devoid of forward thinking um futuristic thoughts and ideas. And I, I, well, well, think about this for a minute. So Mary Shelley, she envisioned um, the, the creation and manipulation of life in a very sad, dark, dismal way. Um, you know, the, the monster is someone to, to pity and to, to be sympathetic of. Dules Verne, although he created, you know, fantastic worlds, I mean, let's face it, Captain Nemo was a jerk. He really was. And, yeah. and um, you know, they faced, uh, you know, in, in the Jules Verne novels, I mean, unimaginable horrors. H.G. Uh, Wells, the future he saw, the future he saw in the steam era, in the Victorian era, was a post-apocalyptic dystopian yeah. cataclysm. Yeah. 
So how did how did we get stuck with that label? I never understood this. I never understood how this could have possibly have happened. Um, other than the fact that I think that it was it's uh, it's it's sort of like a bait and switch with steampunks who are trying to pass us off as if as if we're the doom and gloom guys when hey look let's let's see what's going on in in your backyard let's see what's going on in your closet in your basements and um hg wells was not a happy guy he really was not mr um hey happy days are here again he wasn't that guy he was very deeply concerned about the future. He was more George Orwell than George Orwell was. He was more George Orwell before George Orwell. A lot of his writing was really, really dark. And he wrote about how um, technology was going to be the death of us all. He was, what do we call him, a Luddite? He really did not like the idea of modern technology. Um, he was frightened of it. To a very large extent. Um, and a lot of people seem to think that his, his, uh, his book, War of the Worlds, was not really about invaders from Mars. Um, it, it was about an invasion of something else. It was invasion of... Uh, the, the, the Martians represented um, industry, the coming of, uh, you know, the... Uh, the era where technology would take over with these giant machines, the giant machines would come and, and kill us all and, um, and, and, and take over the world and destroy it. And the only thing that we can, we can uh, take uh, comfort in is that na nature will find a way to, to reassert itself and, and push the giant reset button. Um, and a lot of people who cling to Jules Verne, Jules Verne was also a scary dude who had a very bleak outlook into the future. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as I, I think more about this, really this idea that that diesel punk can be equated with post-apocalyptic themes really stems from one source. And I, I've talked about this before, and no disrespect to Mr. Pycraft, but he is the one who suggested that diesel punk is post-apocalyptic. And and that's where we get the term Pycraftian diesel punk. Yeah. But that was that was in one article. Yes. Uh, a decade ago now. And really there's not been any material that that comes to mind that supports that view. You know, you've been asking what are some of the founding documents? We actually have a link to that document that you talk about. Um, on thefedorachronicles.com slash dieselpunks, um, and which will become the, the homepage someday for dieselpunks.org. Uh, yeah, no, go ahead. And that's, that's where they can find the documents that we're talking about. Yeah, and, and you know, truth be told, um, sure, we, we look to that as one of the early writings, but I, I, and no disrespect I know there are people out there who are listening to us right now who are, who are saying, I can't believe Johnny is, is about to say this, but I, I'll say it again. Um, all respect to Mr. Pycraft, but what have you done for me lately? Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I think it's a mistake 
for us to hang the definition of our genre on the opinion of one person in one article. Oh, absolutely. Especially when the balance, the balance of the material really is more in line with what Nick Odden's envisioned diesel punk to be. You know, when he when he called it hopeful uh, and, and we get the term hopeful autism or autism diesel punk. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the art deco. It's the jazz age. It's the, you know, hopeful future, the world of tomorrow. Yeah. So I, I think that and, and I made this call out earlier and I, actually it was earlier this morning because the thing is, is like. What I want to have happen is that when somebody does a Google search or a Bing search or whatever search engine people use in the future, when they do a search for what is diesel punk um, or diesel punk for beginners, all you should see for the first three or four pages is nothing but articles written by our members, whether it's the diesel punks group on Facebook or um, or the other groups created by our, 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 our friends. Um, Stuart Anthony is one of them. Name, name some other, other um, giants in, uh, in, in steampunk, uh, diesel punk right now. That, that should- uh, Larry M. Yet. Um, and, and uh, you know, I would put up their uh, uh, Gilly's Moses Axe or Axe Moses. All those guys should have articles that say what is diesel punk all everybody who has a voice and has something interesting to say should have one of those founding documents i think that we should develop more founding documents about what it means to be a diesel punk and it should be written by diesel punks the idea that we allow other people like steampunks or aja romero or whoever to define us and for us to say, you know, okay, well, right, if that's what you think, you're for you're entitled to your opinion. That's nonsense, and I sh- and we should change that. I mean, you know, I, I would I would throw in there Charles Cornell. Oh, absolutely, and and, and William Jackson, and um, you know, for that matter, Anders Blix. Yeah, and Joe Pearson, uh, the creator of War of the Worlds, Goliath. Yeah. Have you have you seen this movie? Oh, are you crazy? It's it's on a rainy day, and I'm home alone with my kids. That's the movie that my wife, that my kids and I watch when my wife has gone on business. I mean, it's it's so diesel punk. It's it's ridiculous. I almost gag on the fumes. It's so diesel punk. <laughs> those, I mean, those are the guys that are creating the product. You know, uh, Bard Constantine. Um, I, I would even. Paul Roman Martinez, the creator of the adventures of the 19 XX. Yeah. You know, he's not so much involved in the community, but he is creating, he's creating diesel punk and, and he knows that's what it is. That's what he calls it. Um, you know, these are the guys that have been active in the community. And look again, no disrespect to Nick Ottens, but he, he he was in the steampunk community, right? Yeah. And and still is. And and you know he wrote his article on Gatehouse Gazette, you know, to just kind of you know say to steampunks, hey, you're you're hearing this term thrown around. What is it? Well, yeah. here's 
how I interpret it. But at, at the end of the day, we, we've been creating the genre. Oh, yeah. In, in, in the community since then. And I think I really do believe, Eric, that it has, I don't want to say changed, but it has evolved. Right. Since those early, quote unquote, founding documents. Well, here's another thing. I'm going to, if I mispronounce her name, uh, uh, Tiana Marie White, she should be writing a founding document about what it means to be a, a diesel punk, especially since she's a woman and, and a woman of color. She should be involved in helping us out here. We have so many women who are a member of our groups that should be writing what does it mean to be a diesel punk, period. And then what yeah. does it mean to be a diesel punk woman? period and and, and and where are they they and and um um one of you know some of some of some of our other friends um uh, uh holly gonzalez wrote this awesome thing that we published on our site and i mean that's a that's a great start um but there really needs to be a lot more people who are defining the genre for us um and not allowing other people to do it. I mean, I, it's like it's like this. I had no idea that the Fedora Chronicles was a diesel punk um, news organization until I actually like really looked at it. What am I trying to do? Bring forth the style and substance of the golden era, the the the, the jazz era decades into the twenty first century, and that is quintessential diesel punk. I don't understand where these people get off saying that that we want dystopia. I, I still don't. And it makes me, you know what? It makes me a little mad. <laughs> well, you know, it kind of, kind of dovetails into my, um, you know, my cause du jour and that's uh, diesel punk appropriation or misappropriation. Misappropriation. Drives me, drives me nuts. Oh, right. Like the people who say um, diesel punk, uh, I'm sorry, steampunk has no rules and everything is steampunk. That that drives me crazy. When somebody is obviously cobbling together um, World War II surplus um, Army, Navy, Air Force stuff into their everyday wear, it's obviously the, the, the jazz era decades. And, oh, well, that, that's, that's steampunk? No. And, and, and look, I don't mind if those people use the term retropunk. Or anachropunk to be a big umbrella term yeah. for for all of that, that's fine with me. I, I do it myself. But when you're talking about a specific genre of diesel punk, let's be really clear that we're talking about very specific aesthetics. And really, Eric, th this is the epiphany that I've had recently. And, and this is what I share with people at cons. You know, if you look at steampunk, steampunk is really about the technology. You know, technology stopped with the steam era and, and everything revolves around the steam engine. That's not really true of diesel punk. No. You know, the, the original definition was that we got, you know, the label based off of diesel fuel and the diesel engine. And that maybe that was the start. The, the spark, but really today, the, the evolution, diesel punk is about style and aesthetic, not about the specific technology. Right, right. And um, 
And the thing is, if we can do it all over again, I think maybe Deco Punk may be more appropriate for what we're trying to do. But the name Diesel Punk stuck. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, I'm okay with that. I, I would have preferred Deco Punk, but yeah, that, that that's not what stuck. And um, so here, here we are. So, yeah, I would say everybody listening to this, every single one of you, have something to contribute. You all have a voice. So uh, put your put your pen to paper. Get those fingers, you know, on those keys, and bang out some founding documents for us. Yeah, absolutely. Because the thing is, is that like I said a couple of minutes ago, when you do a Google search and asking what is diesel punk. Or Diesel Punk for Beginners, I want our articles to be the first ones that come up page after page after page. I want all the older documents that don't define us anymore to just sort of like, let's just archive them, but let them let them pass away. Let's let them wither on the vine. And Diesel Punks should be defining what Diesel Punk is from here on out. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, anyway, let's close out the show by um, talking about uh, what projects are you working on now and what do we have to look forward to in the next episode? Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay low for a couple of, uh, couple of weeks, a couple of months. You know, I, uh, as a diesel punk entertainer, I actually finished my season, my year, in October. Now, most most of my contemporaries in the magic and music world, they're just now revving up their season. Yeah. For Halloween and, and Christmas holiday stuff. And you know what, Eric? When I don't want to be schlepping my stuff all over the country during the holidays. I want I want to be relaxing, spending it with my family, and just you know recuperating. I I work hard enough. January through October. Um, so I'm, I'm taking some time off. I got my birthday December 1st. I am doing a show that night. But for the most time, most part, I'm, I'm done and I'm focusing on finishing up Tales from the Flipside Part 2. I got to get that done and ready for publication for the first of the year. So right. that's, uh, that's my focus. And I'm going to get that article finished and sent off to you. <laughs> well, and likewise, I, I've got a I've got a couple of founding documents that I'm going to write too. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I've been I've been thinking about it quite a bit, and you know, uh, you know, I, I I don't say this braggadociously. I, I don't say this with any conceit. I just say it as a matter of fact. You know, I've been spreading the diesel punk gospel to the, you know, Comic Con and the science fiction con, literary con scene for the last, you know, three, four, five years now, going to these conventions, doing presentations, speaking, you know, performing and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I got some, uh, some thoughts on this genre to, to share and, and to create some of those founding documents, if you will. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, by the way, I've already reached out to a couple of people, especially people who are new to Diesel Punk. So, uh, look, you know what? Tell your story. Uh, we we want to hear your story. One of the things I'm working on right now is I'm gearing up to go to um, Pulp Adventure Con in New Jersey. I have a link up on my website, thefedorachronicles.com. By the time this airs, uh, I'm going to have a uh, I'm going to have a banner up. It should be up be by October 15th with all the details. I'm going to be uh, doing interviews there for future episodes of our podcast. Um, so I'll, I'll be appearing there live. And I'm also, I'm also working on uh, my presentation that I'll be performing uh, in local conventions here in the Northeast, um, everywhere north of uh, New York City, I, I'll be bringing my show to. And and I, I'm also going to be working on um, a workshop, um, how, how to bring diesel punk into your everyday life. That's something that I'm working on right now. And I'm also reaching out to a, um, a couple of other vendors saying, um, hey, would you like some publicity? <laughs> you know, <laughs> come on over because we, we have a we have an audience for you already ready to go. So that's that's what that's what I'm working on so that when the first of the year comes, um, we're going to have some brand new tricks up our sleeves. So, and I'm still going to keep watching, um, uh, STD and letting people know, um, what about that aspect of retro futurism and, uh, hopefully it turns around. I mean, we'll see. And also one other thing is that, uh, do a Google search for, um, season three of man in the high castle. Um, I know, John, you're you're in early con. Uh, no, I'm sorry, you're a recent convict. I mean, not convict, Freudian slip. You're a recent convert to the Man in the High Castle. Um, season three looks like it's going to be more hard sci-fi and retrofuturism with some real mind-bending thoughts and ideas about what it means to live in a multiverse. And I can't wait. Yeah. When, when does that drop? It's the the trailer has dropped already. Um, you can find it on uh, the show page, um, Fedora Chronicles Radio Show number seventy. At the top of the page, we have um, uh, embedded uh, the the trailer for it. And um, but yeah, just do a search of Man in the High Castle season three trailer. Uh, and you'll you'll find it easily, and I think that we'll also um, drop it on um, uh, our group page on Facebook. Um, well, well, I meant when does the season start? Oh my God. I think it's, I think that's yet to be determined. I'm not sure what I'm, what I'll probably do is when I, when I edit this show, I, I will probably, uh, insert, uh, the time and day, uh, in post-production and make myself look really super cool. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I'm actually man in the high castle. In a, in a couple of months, I mean, it doesn't help anything. It's probably going to it's probably going to uh, drop January after January or February uh, of 2018. Gotcha. So and you know what? The thing is that it's like if, if it happens, look, I mean, look, it's you know what it is. It's replaced Mad Men for me. Mad Men was sort of like that was my you know, that was my favorite show at the time that talked about a different version of the 1960s 
or through the eyes of nostalgia for somebody who lived that era or lived after that era and looking back to their parents' decades. Man in the High Castle is like, um, it's like a different kind of madman. It's like, it, it, but it's literally madmen who are trying to take over the world. So, so that's it, Johnny. That's all I got. You want to sign us out? Yeah, on uh, on behalf of Eric Fisk and the Fedora Chronicles and the Diesel Punk Podcast, this is the artist also known as Big Daddy Cool saying, swing hard, swing often. We'll catch you on the flip side. This has been the Fedora Chronicles radio show and a co-production of the Diesel Punk Podcast. You can find out more about us by going to our websites, thefedorachronicles.com and dieselpunks.com. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can find these links on our homepages. Be sure to visit our sponsors, Chester Cordite, Landron Artifacts, and the Trinity Whip Company. Also, check out the friends of our show, Penman Hats and Reconstructing History. Once again, this is Eric Render King Fisk signing off, and keep your chins up and your fedoras on. Mm-hmm.